It's Wednesday, August 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Americans are spending more money on faster internet speeds, on the promise of faster load times and higher quality streaming. But is it really worth it? Recent tests by the Wall Street Journal shows that a typical household doesn't use most of their bandwidth while streaming and only get marginal gains from upgrading your speed. Shalini Ramachandran, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for why upgrading your bandwidth might not be the best choice. Next, after so many recent mass shootings, the business of everyday ballistic gear is booming. Companies are selling bulletproof backpacks, clipboards, and more. The key demographic for these products are parents with kids. But how effective are these products in protecting your kids from gunfire? Abba Batarai, national retail reporter for the Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, Facebook is making good on its promise to let you see all of the info they have collected about you from other websites. The new tool called Off Facebook Activity will let you see what they know about you from your browsing history and give you the option of clearing it although it's never really deleted. Ryan Mack, senior tech reporter at BuzzFeed News, joins us for what this new tool is all about. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Paying for a faster speed to improve your streaming video is like paying for a bigger driveway and hope you'll get to work faster. Joining us now is Shalini Ramachandran, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Shalini. Thanks for having me. One of the things that everybody wants in their home is a strong internet connection and beyond that, a fast internet connection. Nobody wants to get bogged down with downloads, taking too long, or when you're streaming your your shows on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu, whatever it is, uh, you know, nobody wants it to be lagging or that low quality stuff. And a lot of times what internet service providers are selling you are faster speeds. You want to pay more uh, megabits per second, things like that. But you guys did an interesting look into how this actually works. And the truth about faster internet is it's usually not worth it. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, we were just coming off, working off this premise that the cable and phone companies that sell us our internet are marketing faster speeds and saying that you're going to be able to stream better and do all the things that you do on the internet um, better with faster speeds. So we just wanted to ask, is that true? And so what we did was we got roughly 50 of our journalists to uh, participate in this trial, in this sort of panel. And what we we studied it was their actual performance of these various streaming applications. And one major test that we did was just ask everybody to push their internet connection to the, 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 I guess, really try to break the internet connection by streaming a <laughs> bunch of things at once. So you had people, I mean, there was like seven to eight different devices running at the same time streaming, uh, whatever it is, shows, YouTube videos, a bunch of things. And, and one group of our panelists who were, who were streaming seven things at once only had used a median speed of 7.1 megabits per second. And many and these panelists were the ones who were paying for speeds of 100 megabits per second or more. So this is when they were trying to break their connection. It really was only about seven seven megabits per second average. So, so you can you can kind of you know extrapolate from there that it's it's kind of difficult to max out your bandwidth. So even if you're paying for higher bandwidth with higher speeds, on average, you're really using the the same amount as everybody else. A lot. It seems to me that a lot of times what it is is, you know, these services like Netflix and Hulu, they compress videos, they do all sorts of stuff. I mean, they're optimizing the bandwidth use 
on their end. So it's not like you're really going to ma- you know use your your entire total at any one point. That's exactly right. And all, all of these major tech companies that are some of our biggest video providers today with streaming, they do a ton of things just to compress their videos in a smart way because they, their major goal is that they want anybody to be watching their stuff. So whether you're on a slow or fast connection. So the net result is that they're often giving you pretty good quality videos at a pretty low speed rate. And we also just found that there's not that much difference in quality. So in resolution and in startup time, what we call like from the minute you, or the second you press play to when you actually see something stream, we weren't able to see many significant differences in quality between people paying for less than 55 megabits per second and people paying for more than 250 megabits per second. In the article for, of all the people that were uh, testing this from the Wall Street Journal, you subscribe to one of the lower tiers, 15 megabits per second. And and, uh, I think you had about seven different streams going as well and didn't really have any issues with quality. Right. In fact, it was sort of by design. I I wanted to try and see, let me get the slowest speed tier I can (laughs) and see what happens. (laughs) And I I was streaming seven things at once and uh, didn't see any difference in quality. And what, it, what, did, what we did see in the data is that I used a significant chunk of my bandwidth for, uh, so I used 15 megabits per second or more for a significant chunk of that test, but it didn't translate into any quality deficiencies. In what case would it be really good to have or to pay for extra fast speeds? I think the the cases that that at least the companies talked about when they when we reached out to them for comment, the big browser providers, they were talking about um, ultra HD gaming. So it's called 4K. Not mm-hmm. not a lot of people use this stuff today, but it's something that some a small sector section of people do. Um, but even 4K streams, just for for some context, um, they use maybe like 25, 35 megabits per second when when they're really going all at once on a 4K capable device. Now. Not many people have those. So just just the context, you know, what we're talking about are speeds being marketed to of 200, 300, 400 gigabit. So it's still with, well within the range um, if you wanted to be streaming 4K and doing all that once. Now, what they're saying is, well, what if you're streaming like several 4K things at once mm-hmm. or like, you know, had, a, you know, connected home with lots and lots and lots of devices. But again, for some context, um, a connected home device is like to turn off your lights over the internet is going to be a small, tiny, tiny request. Right. If you have like maybe hundreds of devices or something, you might potentially you know hit up against some minute. But these aren't all going at the same time. So it's really that's that's really the, the the crux of the thing is: Are you doing a bunch of things that are hugely high bandwidth at the same time? And not a lot of people are doing that. You know, the first thing that you do when you have a problem, you think things are going slow. You called your internet service provider. The first thing they want to do is sell you these faster speeds, but it's not necessarily all worth it. Uh, did you guys identify kind of that sweet spot deal, like how much you, the average person or the average household really needs? What our researchers say is, you know, beyond 100 megabits per second, you're going to get limited benefits, you know, very marginal benefits. Now, that's even a conservative. I mean, like, like you said, I, I have 15, and we're doing just fine. Now, there's a, a two adults in my household and a baby. So it's not the same as if you had like seven people in your household all streaming. So, but basically, even if you did, our, our researchers say beyond 100, you're, you're not going to get much benefit. But, you know, even 50 is probably good for most people. Shalini Ramachandran, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. 
Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Our ballistic shield, when inserted into backpacks, briefcases, or computer bags, will stop what's referred to as a level 3A threat. This means our shield will stop everything from a 9mm to a 44 Magnum, even submachine guns. Joining us now is Abba Batarai, national retail reporter for the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Abba. Thanks so much for having me. 2019 has been a very tough year. The past few years have been very tough. There's been a lot of mass shootings. They've become so commonplace that there's a real concern of people just kind of carrying on in their everyday lives. They're being happening everywhere. Churches, schools, you know, in the nightlife restaurant bar scene. And it's given the rise to uh, a new industry, basically, the business of everyday ballistic gear. Abba, tell us a little bit more about this. Absolutely. So this, this, like you said, taps into this growing sense of fear and helplessness that we have in this country, particularly among parents who are increasingly nervous about putting their kids on a school bus and sending them to school. Um, so, so these bulletproof backpacks, which have quietly been percolating for a few years, are really gaining ground this year. Um, sales rise after every mass shooting, unfortunately. And this is the first year that major retailers like Office Depot and Office Max are actually selling them in stores for the back to school season. Yeah, I mean, it's not even uh, backpack, uh, just backpacks. There's uh, bulletproof whiteboards, chair cushions, uh, just regular vests for, for kids. It, it's really kind of carrying into everything because you never know when something like this is going to happen. It's so unpredictable. Um, so the big question, though, uh, it's a big booming business. A lot of people are buying them, but do they actually work? You know, the experts that I spoke with said that there is little, if any, evidence that these products actually work. It's a very new industry, like you said, and so there just has not been a lot of testing done. These products aren't vetted by the government, like ballistic gear for law enforcement officers might be. So you're really just kind of going on what the manufacturers are telling you. And even if they are effective, a lot of the academics that I spoke to raised the question of, well, what are the chances that a child is going to have the backpack on them at the very second that a shooter charges into their classroom? And even if they do, um, how are they going to know exactly where the shooting is coming from and like be able to anticipate the bullet's trajectory in such right. a way that they position the backpack in front of their bodies? And, you know, like everything has to work out perfectly in that split second. These are very tense situations, and they just thought that the likelihood of that was very slim. A lot of the products, they're advertised as meeting a ballistic level 3A standard. Uh, what does that mean? The ballistic level 3A standard means that they can withstand bullets from handguns and revolvers, but what that doesn't protect against is military-style assault rifles, which is what we're increasingly seeing, unfortunately, in right. mass shootings. So these are useless in the face of those, those types of weapons. You spoke to a number of parents saying, I just want to do anything I can, and this gives me a little more peace of mind. Exactly. Every parent that I've spoken to has said is, you know, I understand that this isn't a miracle. It's not going to necessarily protect my child, but I want to know that I'm doing everything that I can. And this is a very tangible way for them to feel good about sending their kid to school with a bulletproof backpack. Describe to us how some of these backpacks look uh, or that a lot of them are just inserts. It's not ne just necessarily a backpack. Uh, they're inserts that you could buy and put into any other backpack. What do these look like? 
Um, so a lot of these backpacks look just like backpacks. I mean, if it wasn't for the company logo, you know, that said guard dog security or whatever the company name might be, you would have no idea that this was a bulletproof backpack. And the inserts take that a step further. They're just sort of this cardboard, not cardboard, but <laughs> this rectangular insert that you stick inside your backpack and you can move it around from backpack to backpack as your child outgrows it. Um, and they're just meant to be a bulletproof shield. You did speak to a parent who bought one of these inserts for their kid. They were going to have their grandma sew it into the you know regular Jansport type backpack. But then came the hard part. They had to explain to them how to use the backpack, what to do in a situation. So this was a woman who had a six-year-old child who was starting first grade this year, and she she and her partner had been deciding for a long time whether they wanted to get one of these bulletproof backpacks or an insert. It had been months and months, and then after the shootings happened in El Paso, they decided, you know what, it's time. So they bought this insert, and then they had to sort of sit their kid down and sort of explain what this was and why he might need to use it, you know, that he would need to position it in front of his body if a gunman came to school. So these are really difficult conversations that parents are having to have, and a lot of the parents I spoke to honestly were on the fence. They kind of wanted to buy one of these, but their big sort of question mark was, how am I going to have this conversation with my elementary school student? And do I really want them to fear, you know, um, have this fear like so at the front of their minds? Yeah. I mean, at that point, you're, you're putting it in their backpack. You have to instruct them what to do, you know, how to use it properly. And you run that risk of, of scaring them at that point. These are kids that have been doing active shooter drills in schools, unfortunately, so they are familiar with a lot of a lot of the danger, but this sort of makes it that much more real to know that you have a bulletproof device on your back. We spoke about the certifications and the testing on these. I guess the Justice Department does do testing on certain things for law enforcement to meet certain ballistic standards. How come some of these companies haven't gone that route or haven't tried to get them certified other ways? Companies have tried to demonstrate in their own ways exactly how effective these backpacks are. Like you mentioned, a lot of them have videos on their website or they play up their credentials. Some of these are made by law enforcement officers themselves or by companies that have created military vehicles for years. So they do have a lot of these companies have a background in armored vehicles and other bulletproof gear. Abba Batarai, national retail reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Facebook is still king, right? You think of Facebook products and you have Facebook, the blue app, you have Facebook Messenger, you have Instagram, you have WhatsApp. And between all these products, you have more than two and a half billion people in the world using one of those products every month. Joining us now is Ryan Mack, senior tech reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So now you can finally see what all the info that Facebook has collected about you from other websites the company introduced a new tool that lets people better see and control this information. It's called off Facebook activity. One of the interesting things that Facebook said is that people generally had more than 80 apps on their phones that would track a lot of this information. So, I mean, there's a potential for a lot of information to be seen on this stuff. Uh, Tell us more about it and, and how we can use this new tool. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned apps, but it's actually just not apps as well. I mean, these are websites that, Let's say you go and visit Levi's.com, for example. There's probably a Facebook tracker on that. In fact, there's about a a third of all websites have a Facebook tracker through the Facebook login button, through a like button, some some kind of thing. Those are called pixels. And so what Facebook does is it takes in all this data from third party websites, from apps, and it uses that to kind of curate 
ads when you are on the Facebook platform or on the Facebook app or on Instagram, for example. And that's the bulk of how the company makes its money. It's this kind of ad targeting business. And so what this new tool is going to uh, allow is basically for people to see where it's collecting this data, how it's collecting it, and basically disconnect your Facebook profile from those sources of data if you'd like to. So it's kind of an opt-in function. Now, this is happening more than a year after Mark Zuckerberg has said that something like this was coming. I think they wanted to call it clear history uh, the first time around. Why did this take so long to get there? So you have to remember the context, again, of, of why this company announced it at that time in, in May 2018. Um, it was facing an enormous amount of pressure from the media, from lawmakers, because of the fallout of these multiple privacy scandals. And so uh, we wrote a, a big feature on this, but Mark Zuckerberg goes out on stage at the developers conference in, in May 2018, this, this thing called F8, and he announces this thing called Clear History. Um, what people didn't know at the time was that it was really rushed out. It was seen by some Facebook insiders that we talked to as kind of a, a PR move, damage control. And what they didn't know was the amount of technical work that would need to be go into developing a tool that actually removes some of the ad capabilities because they're so kind of intertwined with the way Facebook operates, the way it collects data. And so it's, it's taken this long, more than a year now, and they've kind of moved away from this phrase, clear history, although there, it is the button within the feature. It's not technically a complete clear of, of your history. And I think that's where people have to realize that Facebook will collect this data on, on its users and let's say you engage with this tool and you want to use it, well, your profile will just simply be disassociated with that data. Facebook won't delete that data. It won't purge that data in any way from its servers, but it will anonymize it um, and use it kind of in aggregate. One of the big things is obviously if this gets widespread adoption and a lot of people pay enough attention to want to go through this process and clear their data out, you know, Facebook is going to lose a lot of revenue because of the way their, their ads, um, you know, all, all that stuff works. But since they're still going to keep your data, I mean, through algorithms and everything else, I just feel like they're probably still going to be able to target you pretty effectively with a bunch of different ads. So they've kind of primed businesses to be wary of this. And so they're saying, well, we may lose the effectiveness of our ad targeting. We may not know that Ryan likes Levi's anymore and um, because he's disassociated that and we only have aggregate data. So we only know that a 30-year-old male likes this thing in San Francisco. It's, it's kind of anonymized in a way. So the three countries that are getting it right now are Ireland, South Korea, and Spain, and it's only some users in that, and slowly it will roll out. But yeah, again, it remains to be seen how, how effective this thing will be and how much it will affect the bottom line because Facebook wouldn't kind of release its projections for how many people would use this, this tool. The news of Facebook has been going on for so long now, and it feels like there's a story every other day sometimes. But... Mm -hmm. where, where does Facebook still fit in the hierarchy of social media? Because they own Instagram also, but I know people kind of gravitate to one or the other a lot of times. So where does Facebook still fit on this? Because I know a lot of people hear this story and they're like, I don't even use the Facebook anymore. Facebook is still king, right? You think of Facebook products and you have Facebook, the blue app, you have Facebook Messenger, you have Instagram, you have WhatsApp. And between all these products, you have more than two and a half billion people in the world using one of those products every month. And so whether you like it or not, I mean, it's kind of hard to disconnect yourself completely from the realm of Facebook. If you're not using it, someone within uh, one degree of separation of you certainly is with your family or friends. Um, so yeah, it's, it's quite an all-encompassing company.
Ryan Mack, senior tech reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.